this morning's sermon text and hear God speak to us through his word. And you can turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you today, you can grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be nearby or in front of you, and you can find today's text on page 912, our ongoing series through this wonderful book of the Apostles' Acts. By the Spirit's power continues today as we want to look at verse 32 of chapter 4 all the way through verse 11 of chapter 5. So let me read that text and pray then for our time and we'll begin. So here now as God speaks to you through his word. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, A Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has the Spirit Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. And the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yeah, for so much. Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out immediately. She fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. and They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we ask even this day that your spirit might illumine our understanding, that he would guide our hearts into the truth that is before us this day, that fear, reverence, obedience, and awe might pour forth from us in true sincerity and integrity, that you would help us to hear as dying people and for me to preach as a dying preacher. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I walked into the house earlier this week from the office and found one of the children seated on the couch in our family room reading this kids magazine that shows up monthly in our mailbox. And this particular child loves to read the magazine because of the jokes it contains 
in it. He's a budding comedian of sorts, and it's got all these other activities in there as well. And some of you might know how these kind of kids' magazines and the collection of activities often go. There's a number of different ones, these models, these patterns that tend to be used, and even some of you who are Sunday school teachers will know of which I speak. They're often in a magazine like that, if you can recall or have experienced it even recently. There might be this spot the difference exercise where you open up a page and seemingly there on the page, there are two identical pictures. At least at first glance, they appear to be two identical pictures. But you only need to look a little bit harder before you realize quite quickly that you need to circle 10 differences between the two pictures or seven differences that the lower picture has that the top picture does not. And the reason I tell you that is because we come to a text today that is justly famous in Acts, the death, the execution of Ananias and Sapphira. Yet often, for reasons of a man-made chapter division, It's divorced from the immediately preceding context at the end of chapter 4. And the reason we know they're connected is because of the first word of the first verse of chapter 5, which is but. Because what we have before us in this text is very much a spiritual spot the difference exercise. You have a picture of a person giving in the first half of our text. And another picture of a household giving in the second part of our text. But, of course, it's not very difficult, is it, to begin to see quickly, even immediately, the difference between these two portraits. And the second half of our text, with the death of Ananias and Sapphira, has often been one that people have come to and expressed great amazement at. Even one commentator I read this week says, it is surely the most difficult account in the entire book. It led me to remember a number of years ago when a church member called me up. And as I looked at my phone, I I didn't have the normal sense of concern that you get when church members call you. Because usually you hear something bad has happened when you're called. And this was a close friend of mine, and he immediately uh, said, Hey, Ananias and Sapphira, what's up with that? Because he had read it in his Bible reading plan and had never read it before. And he thought... As he continued to talk on the phone, I never knew, is what he said, that we have this picture of God's justice in the New Testament that I always thought just belonged to the Old Testament. And you might be somewhat stunned even in your own mind and heart today, surprised in your own soul at the summary meeting out of God's judgment upon a man and a woman for what might seem like little more than just a little white lie. But we want to see today how it is actually so much more than that. Not that it needs to be so much more than that for sin to deserve God's penalty of death. So we want to come ready, don't we, with hearts that are uh, prepared for conviction. But at the same time, we want to be uh, ready even from the outset to notice how Satan continues to war against the early church in the book of Acts because we've seen in recent weeks How Satan's strategies are external ones that he's thrown against the church. You might recall how our recent texts have spoken of imprisonment, uh, threats from religious authorities, from civil leaders. And the early church was standing strong in the face of that external opposition and intimidation. 
But what we see now in our text today, and it's something that actually is going to happen also in chapter 6, is that Satan's schemes and Satan's strategies, it goes on the inside. Uh, here is a strategy of the enemy that's not an external one, but it's an internal one. He's trying to bring the church down from the unfaithfulness and disobedience of just a few on the inside. And some of you might be observers of local churches long enough or studious readers of church history enough to know that I think it is true that more local churches have been destroyed by internal struggles than external opposition, inside problems than external difficulties. And so what we have before us are these two portraits, what I'm calling, first of all, in chapter 4 at the end, a picture of generosity, and then secondly, with the 11 verses that begin chapter 5, a picture of hypocrisy. So we left off last week, if you weren't with us, in the middle part of chapter 4. Peter and John had just been released from prison. They had been threatened not to preach the gospel anymore. So they go immediately to their own, the text says, and they engaged in another early church prayer meeting. And they prayed out to the sovereign Lord of the universe, he who is sovereign in creation, revelation, and predestination. And they were asking for nothing more than the ability to speak the gospel in the face of that external threat, uh, speak that gospel with all boldness. And what we saw is that God answered the prayer right away because he shook the house in which they were praying. He poured out this fresh supply of God's spirit that they might do just that, which is preach the gospel uh, with all boldness. And in a way that's similar to the end of chapter 2, uh, we, we get this kind of small, brief uh, portrait, this picture of what life was like in the early church. And it's somewhat similar even to what we saw at the end of chapter 2, for we see, first of all, in our text today, this picture of generosity. Notice verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. It's hard to know exactly at this point what the full number's total was. If you kind of add up the previous numerics of the book, it's surely north of 5,000 people at this point by modern-day standards. The early church is utterly a megachurch at this moment. Uh, but Luke is telling us that they had this unity in the spirit. They were of one heart, and they were of one soul even in their life together. And it's surely a singular mark of God's people throughout the ages, at least it's supposed to be a singular mark of God's people throughout the ages, that they live in unity that they live in harmony. You might remember if you were with us earlier this year and in the morning service, we were walking through the Psalms of Ascent and eventually we got to Psalm 133, which is this Psalm about the blessing and the, and the beauty of unity. And I told you in that study that there was this movement in the early church, well, at least the church of the fourth and fifth centuries, that as they kind of stared at these demands of Christian unity upon God's people in God's word, they saw that ordinary churches no longer seemed to have that kind of unity, even the one of which we see here in Acts 4. And it was about that time that you started finding monasteries show up all over the place. And even uh, leading theologians, no less than one named Augustine, would say that it's through the monasteries, this monastic movement, that true Brotherly love and unity would finally revive itself once again. But uh, what is God telling us here? But that it's actually through the local church, not monasteries, not other movements, not parachurch organizations. It's through the local church 
uh, that God made for Christian unity to reveal itself, to show forth itself. And in this passage in particular, they don't have just unity in the spirit. Uh, what, what Luke is focusing our attention on is a tangible manifestation of that unity, which we might say reverently is unity with stuff. Because notice the end of verse 32. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. You'll see verse 34 also goes on to say, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone that had a need. And it's right for us not to think of this as some sort of proof text for Christian communism as much as it's just a proof text for Ordinary spirituality in a church. Ordinary devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you who are parents might think about it in this way, how true it is that parents will do whatever it takes to provide for that which their children need. Healthy church members, local assemblies will do whatever it takes to provide for those who need in that local church, in that gathering of God's people, clearly it's telling us that it's the wealthy in the congregation, uh, people that had multiple houses evidently, multiple properties, they were selling these things and giving all the proceeds to the church and the elders would then disperse it out to those that had need in the church. And I, I wonder then if any time in your recent life you've perhaps sold something in order to give it to someone. Uh, you've taken perhaps a profit that was something that the Lord brought your way personally, but you thought it was best to Share with those who had a greater need than you had. It's why when John Calvin was preaching on this passage, he said, surely it is a man of iron whose heart would not be melted by this example of the early church. And what Luke wants us to see at the end of this picture of generosity is that there's a particular man known for generosity. You'll see verse 36 to 37. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. We're going to get to know Barnabas a little bit better as this book progresses in uh, the coming months of our study. It's significant, though, for you to recognize here that his name is really Joseph. That Barnabas, if you're familiar with that name in the book of Acts, is his nickname. Now, I grew up, as many of you know, just playing soccer here, there, and everywhere. And as those of you who grew up in some sort of athletic environment know, that it's pretty common that players on your team are never called by their first name nor their last name. It's some mutation of their first name or their last name, or it's a nickname that you come up with altogether. And so I was thinking this week of uh, these men that I played with in years past that, you know, we never referred to them by their proper names. So a man, for example, whose name was Robert, and his parents called him Bobby, but we decided to call him Bobbo. Or this man that was named Matt Williams, who was very fast, and he took to himself the nickname of Turbo. Or this man who was a captain of our team, who was like the sage-like leader from Colombia, Oscar Pereja, and we called him Poppy, is what it was on the field. And, and here's Joseph, so full of generosity. He's often seen, and it makes sense, as a man who's full of encouragement with words. But you notice the context is actually he's a man full of encouragement with what he gives materially. To where his nickname is Barnabas. The elders say, such is your generosity that you are a man of encouragement. Now, students, 
If the pastors or elders of this church were to give you a nickname, what would that nickname be? If the elders were to give any church member a nickname, to give you a word of truth based on how you live in the church, what might be the nickname that you would get? A child of generosity, a child of humility, a child of meekness, a daughter of faith, a son of love? Or might it sound something quite different because of your place and work in the life of the church? So we have this picture, don't we, of, of generosity, And it sets up for us our second half of the text, which is a picture of hypocrisy. Because if we didn't have that first word in verse 1 of chapter 5, we might think that Luke is going to go on and just tell us another story, another picture he's going to give us of generosity with this man named Ananias and with his wife Sapphira selling a piece of property. Yet the text begins by saying, but Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of property. So you have this man named Barnabas. He's living up to his nickname in generosity. You have a couple here, Ananias and Sapphira, that aren't living up to their name. As Ananias means something like gracious gift of God, and Sapphira means something like beautiful. And what they offer and lay before the apostles' feet is neither gracious nor beautiful. As you'll see in verse 2, with his wife's knowledge... Ananias kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we need to think carefully here about what is exactly the sin that is soon going to lead Ananias to breathe his last in the presence there of the apostles and the assembly. Because it's clear that the sin wasn't that they didn't give everything that they profited from on the sale of their land. Because the way Peter talks about it in the next few verses is you could do with it whatever you want. Uh, the sin more particularly is that, for example, you, you sold the land for $20,000, but here you come giving the proceeds of the land as $2,000 and saying, actually, that was the entire sale of the property, only $2,000, and you've kept back for yourself this money along the way. And it's probably fair because of Luke's linking it with Barnabas, is that Ananias and Sapphira, in almost all likelihood, Uh, They they see this generosity going on in the church. They see Barnabas getting a nickname from the apostles, this growing reputation and renown for his faithfulness in giving. And they think, well, we could do that too. We've got property that we could sell. And so they call up their real estate agent and say, hey, why don't you take property over there in Jerusalem and sell it? And then he contacts them a few days later and says, you're never going to believe the kind of cash offer that I got for this property. And so they begin to think, Ananias and Sapphira do, probably, well, what we were intending to give in its entirety to the church, well, maybe we can get that timeshare in Caesarea. Or maybe we can buy those extra donkeys. And then they say, what? We're going to keep some of it back, but we still want the reputation. We still want the renown of being generous givers, maybe getting a plaque there in the church. So comes Ananias and says, Here is what we got from the sale of our property. And notice Peter's response in verse 3 and 4. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? There's many things that you can meditate on in those few verses alone, uh, one of which is the simple need that church leaders have for discernment, 
Uh, you'll, you'll see this. As the Spirit fills his leaders throughout the book of Acts, there's times in which the apostles have this gift of discernment and they see through, don't they, the situation. They, they see through what they're being told. And many pastors and officers today, they, they need greater ability to see through in order to shepherd and serve faithfully. Too many congregations, I do fear, are actually not as healthy as they could be because leaders can't see through in the way that Peter does here. But what does he see through too? But the reality of Ananias' situation, the reality of Ananias' heart. He uses this language, you'll notice at the end of verse 3, this phrase of keeping back. It's the exact same phrase that was used in the Greek New Testament of this story in the Old Testament of this man named Achan who kept back part of the plunder for himself and it brought God's displeasure upon the assembly and he had to die because of his sin. And so thus what we see is Ananias is going to have to die for his death. And what he says at the end of verse 4, isn't it, is locating the sin not just in deceit and dishonesty and hypocrisy, because all that's true, but even as we'll see as he talks to Sapphira just a few hours later, it's about lying to God. I grew up in a home where my mother would often quote to us in her parenting, correction, training, and discipline, Bible verses. And I've even told her in years past, I think the one that we heard most often in the stone house, my five sisters and I, was uh, Proverbs 12, verse 22. And I wonder if any of you know that one. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Because she would often see through and think, I don't believe you're telling the truth. But that's what you say it is. Nevertheless, here's your warning. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Such as the abomination of Ananias' sin. Notice what happens, verse 5. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. The young men, verse 6, came and rose and wrapped him up and carried out and buried him. So, three hours pass. You'll notice verse 7 tells us this was a time in which, of course, communication of events and current realities didn't travel as quickly. Ananias has been dead. He's entombed, it seems like, for three hours. And then Sapphira, his wife, she comes into the very same assembly room, not knowing what has just happened some 180 minutes before. And she gets the exact same question from Peter, because he's seen through. He asked her, notice in verse 8, really telling her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Ananias has said, Sapphira, that you got this much from your proceeds. And profit of the property. Well, she says, you'll see at the end of verse 8, yeah, that's, that's what we got it for. And so Peter says again, speaking about this lying to the Lord, how is it, verse 9, that you have agreed together to test the Lord's spirit? Behold the feet of those who have buried your husband, for they are at the door and they will carry you out. And immediately, imagine being in the assembly, you hear this plop. Be terrifying, wouldn't it? Three hours before, we're talking to Ananias, and Peter didn't say anything in either occasion, did he? He just said, Why have you done this? And can you imagine the fear that would have fallen upon those people? 
You mean to tell me that they just lied about the profits and proceeds they received from the sale of property and now God has struck them dead? Imagine if we were standing up in our assembly or any church assembly in the area today and you were singing and suddenly you heard this. Because sin had come in to the assembly. Sin that Satan means to destroy it from the inside. It's a picture of generosity. It's a picture of hypocrisy. I have this scrapbook. It seems like it's hidden away in a part of my closet. When I was playing soccer years and years ago, my my parents, of course, would send me out before the days of smartphones when everyone seemed to have a scrapbook in their pocket with their phone. And so they would give me instead a disposable camera. And some of you remember these things. And they would give me a couple of them and send me overseas and instruct me to take as many pictures as possible because they wanted to be able to understand something of the experience, be able to see what I was seeing in these various parts. Of the world, I would come back and we you know we'd develop the pictures, and my mom would take them. And she had this project over a number of years of building this scrapbook of all of these travels because you wanted to not forget certain things, and the picture was needed to not forget certain things. And uh, in a way, that's quite true, isn't it? In, in Holy Reverence, we have a, a spiritual scrapbook here of God that we would see two particular things. But actually, I think the text is telling us there are more for us to see, more pictures within the pictures. Because what I want to do here at the end is focus your attention on this word that's repeated four times in our passage, but three things are really in view. Kids, you might have seen it as I read the passage. It's a fourfold repeated use of the word great, mega in the original. I want us to meditate here on the end of God's great power, his great grace, and his great fear. So we see, first of all, if you go back to verse 33 of chapter 4, that preaching needs a supply of God's great power. Because we're told with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And again, in connection with last week's text, that's just an answer of God to their prayer that he would give them more power to preach the word with boldness in the face of threats, threats that are soon going to lead to martyrdom of God's preachers in this book. All preaching and teaching of God's word needs the spirit, otherwise it's utterly powerless. Therefore, a question that might need to confront you today is, did you pray for this sermon? Do you normally pray when you hear God's word that it would come forth, a man who's full of the spirit would come forth with power that overcomes opposition, overcomes intimidation, overcomes potential affliction? That's why even, isn't it true, here at Redeemer, we spend our time always, every single Lord's Day in the pastoral prayer, we pray for some other church in the area, from some other denomination in the area, that that preacher at that church, or those preachers at that church, that they might preach faithfully, that they might preach truthfully. Because Acts keeps telling us that it's upon the winds of the Spirit-empowered preaching that the church grows, and it needs God's great power. But you see, great grace also At the end of verse 33, the church must display God's great grace because we're told great grace was upon them all. Surely in context, that is the grace of generosity. How then have you contributed to the church's grace? 
Because God has poured out into your heart if you come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. He has poured out into your heart out of the abundance of eternal riches of grace in Jesus Christ. Every spiritual benefit and blessing in the heavenly places. What then can we do other than return and abound in such grace as we give? So is your grace occasional? Is it regular? Is it sacrificial? Is it meager? Is it true increasingly of our fellowship that there's not just grace there? But there's great grace, not just power there, great power. But certainly with chapter 5's part of our passage, the third thing we must see, because it's twice emphasized, is the church must understand God's great fear. Because again, you'll see the end of verse 5 in chapter 5, and great fear came upon all who heard of Ananias' death. Verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these Things. So my friend called me up years ago and said, Ananias and Sapphira, what's going on there? And you think, well, why is it in such a singular, particular way that here and frankly, only here in the New Testament do we get this kind of summary capital punishment and judgment? Why? Here. Well, let's take a step back from the surrounding context. What has marked the church's life up to this point in chapter 5? The opportunity to fear whom? Worldly opposition and intimidation. So it's why they want to preach the gospel with boldness. What's going to come next week if you know the end of chapter 5? Not just imprisonment, but now beatings. Fearing the world for the preaching of Jesus Christ. And the text is constructed in such a way where God is saying, don't fear that. The Spirit will help you when that comes. But what should you fear? God who doesn't tolerate sin in the assembly. What should you fear? Is not the world, is not governments, is not even any difficulty out there. But you fear God who takes sin as though children. It is deadly serious. What would it take for you to fear God in this great way? What would God have to tell you, show you, speak to you, for you like the early church to have great fear before him? One theologian said it's the height of impiety to not be afraid of God when you have every reason to be afraid of God. So some of you might be in here today and you don't have this great fear over your sin, deceit or hypocrisy. You too might be like Ananias and Sapphira and you just want to pass it off as if it's really not that big of a deal. Well, God will in time, he promises, strike you in justice and wrath. But the good news of Jesus Christ that we know from the apostles preaching by this point in the book of Acts is that you must pass off your sin. But not as though it's no big deal, but you must Pass it off to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he who bore our iniquities on that cursed cross of Calvary, he who knew no sin was what made to be sin, that you might be his righteousness and receive his forgiveness. Great power, great grace, great fear. What then is your life a picture of, a portrait of hypocrisy, or is it a portrait of generosity? Let's pray together.
Our Father, we do ask that you would increase our fear and reverence before you, that your spirit would fill us this day, that we might know the salvation that's found in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone, that you would help us by the Spirit's supply to walk in obedience before you, that his fruit might abound in our lives, that this church even would know what it means to treasure and to trust that you're a God who has great power, a grace, and to whom belongs great fear. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.